All right, so we're looking at um, our five values over the next five weeks, and it should be a really good snapshot of, of what our church is and where kind of we're coming from. As we got together and started dreaming about this about a year ago, some things bubbled up to the surface as to what would be really important to us as a church. Um, a couple of those things uh, are our five values that we have here, right? So I'm going to go through these five values real quick. We are uh, an imperfect church for imperfect people. I'm sure you've gotten that message before. Hi, everyone. All right, I'm sure you've gotten that message before. It's, um, it's something that's really important to us. It was the first one that we kind of crafted, and, and actually, um, we stole it from a great church, actually, that was doing the exact same thing, and we felt it when we walked in that church, and we wanted that to be one of our values. Uh, number two, we're big K kingdom people. Uh, we value God's kingdom more than we value our own small kingdom. We think pursuit is a piece of God's bigger kingdom, right? So we're interested in serving God's kingdom first and foremost. Number three, we are, we are, we are passionate about people who aren't here yet, right? We want to make sure that we're thinking not just about ourselves when we make decisions, but we're thinking about people outside the walls of our church when we're deciding what we're doing with our finances, when we're deciding how we do ministry, the way that we uh, deal with people. That's one of the things that's really important to us and the idea that we're here to serve our community, not just serve ourselves. Uh, number four, we're convinced that Jesus' gospel is good news for all people. And whether you've uh, been in a church and had a relationship with Jesus your entire life since you were like three years old, or whether you walked in today and have no context for what a church is, we want to make sure that you understand Jesus' gospel is what you need and is the solution to what's going on in your life, uh, and it's for all people. And lastly, we are all about community, and we are all about the community. So we're really focused on the idea of really trying to connect people and for us to have real, authentic community. One of the, the pieces of our church, which we'll get into in September, we're going to open up some new small groups, open up some spots in some existing small groups, and we're going to challenge everybody to be in a small group. It's one of the things that is really important to us. It's one of our values. And so we're all about community, creating community within our church for the people here, and all about the community, serving the community outside of the walls of our church. Those are our five values. And so today we're looking at, we are an imperfect church for imperfect people. And it takes us to a passage that's one of my favorites. I think this is one of the coolest things uh, about Jesus, how he handled people who were difficult, how he handled people who were a little bit rough around the edges. Uh, and I think sometimes you're going to have to make some choices when you uh, start a church or when you're thinking about what it looks like to be a church as to how you're going to handle situations where you have some difficult people who walk into your church. What's going to be the way that you handle? And I think Jesus handled it in a very grace-filled way. And so I want to start us here in John chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to start with verse 5. And this is Jesus with his disciples traveling through uh, on their way somewhere, they go through Samaria. And just to kind of give you a little bit of background on Samaria, basically Samaritans were, um, by Jews, they were looked at as sort of half-breed, right? So they had an, uh, a, a past that was with Israel, but then essentially they had married into other cultures, and they had created another culture that was sort of like half-Jewish, so it had some remnants of Judaism, but then also put them at um, intention with the Israelites who considered themselves to be pure and considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. And then basically this tension, I mean, anytime you have a situation where someone 
is kind of looking down at you because you're not good enough. It's going to create tension. And that was the situation we had between Jews and Samaritans. And so a lot of times you would have conflict. There's Actually, there were little skirmishes that happened between the Jews and, and the Samaritans. The Samaritans at one point had come down. They lived kind of on a mountain, kind of near Jerusalem. They had come down and they had done what they called defile the temple. They had spread uh, dead stuff all over the temple and had basically uh, done something in Israel's eyes to defile or to create conflict with them. And there had been like little skirmishes between them. And so Samaritans and Israelites didn't get along. And in fact, there was a lot of animosity. Jews looked down on Samaritans. Samaritans really had this uh, kind of complex of being like the, the younger brother, being the one that didn't get any uh, respect, being the one that was essentially being hated by the Israelites. So when you are an Israelite passing through Samaria, you first of all, you don't really want to do that. And secondly, you kind of want to steer clear of conflict. You want to stay in a place where you're not going to create any conflict because you're outnumbered. You're in Samaria. You're not in, in Jerusalem. And so Jesus finds himself going through Samaria. And this is the story that, that comes out of that. John chapter 4, starting with verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then it says in parentheses, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And I love that there's a, a couple of parentheses uh, statements in this chapter, and all of them are answering questions that you should ask if you're reading this correctly, right? So if you are a, a Jew and you're reading this story, you go, he did what? Wait, did no one stop him from doing that? Why is he asking this woman for water? And then it answers the question before you can really answer it. Oh, all the disciples had gone into town. So he's there by himself with this woman, and he asks her for water. It's making it very clear that what he's doing is outside of the realm of what is normal for a Jew to do. Okay? And he's alone. He's not there with his friends to stop him. He goes on, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And again, here's the answer to the question you should be asking, right? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And actually, in one translation, it says, for Jews would not use the same vessel as a Samaritan would use. In other words, that cup that she used, or that vessel that she used to pull water, was unclean to a Jew. He should not drink from it. So he asked for something from her that actually should create conflict. She's kind of like, what? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Uh, and by the way, I'm not just a Samaritan, I'm a Samaritan woman. In their culture, that was also an issue. He says, how can you ask me for a drink. You can't share what I have here. You can't use my vessel. You don't have anything to draw water. You can't use what I've got to drink from. So we're at a kind of an impasse here. And Jesus is essentially breaking through the barriers that were there for Jews, right? The barriers of her being a woman, the barriers of her being a Samaritan, the barriers of the clean and unclean situation that, that is going on there. And he just kind of breaks through it. And I think a lot of times when we're dealing with people who are coming to our church, and we're saying, hey, we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. We get, when we get imperfect people coming, we have to realize that we're going to have to break through some barriers to connect and to love people who are bringing stuff with them. There's going to be times when we're going to feel some tension in our relationship with people, and we're going to have to fight through that tension and figure out a way to love and to accept people who are coming into our church from outside. Right? They're going to be bringing baggage with them. There's going to be things that get in the way, and we're going to have to push through that the way that Jesus did. 
He goes on, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said. Now, he kind of does a Jesus juke, right? This happens quite a bit. Okay? She's like, hey, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You can't drink out of my thing. And he just kind of turns the conversation away from the issues that are dividing them and then kind of does something that kind of blows her mind, right? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is very confusing. Uh, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So she comes back with, uh, who do you think you are, man? I don't know if you paid attention, but you ain't got nothing to pull water from this well. And so you kind of need me. And I don't know why you're offering me water. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And she's thinking in the physical. He's thinking in the spiritual. A lot of times when we get people coming in off the streets from the community, they're going to be thinking purely physical. And we need to take the conversation from a physical place to a spiritual place. We need to take the conversation from what are the needs of your every single day that you're dealing with right now, and we need to go to a place that is uh, thinking about God and on the level of what God is doing. I think a lot of people don't realize there's so much more happening than what they see and touch, right? That there's a lot more happening, and we need to take that conversation to that place for most people. And if they walk in off the street looking for something or needing help or, or whatever, we need to take it from a physical place to a spiritual place the same way that Jesus did. And by the way, we're going to be met with confusion. They're going to be like, I just needed some help with this, and why are you talking about that? But we need to make those connections the same way Jesus did. So he goes on. Jesus answered. Here's another Jesus juke. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of life, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, one of the things that we hadn't talked about yet is what's going on here. Right? We know uh, anyone who's been in a desert. Anyone here ever been in a desert? Not a lot of us. Okay. Uh, let's, let's turn that around, all right, and let's think about it from a Minnesota point of view. All right? So you don't want to do anything in the middle of the night in the middle of the winter, right? If you're out on the road and you get a flat tire, you are not happy about that situation. You're pulling blankets out of the trunk, right? Like, you don't want to be stuck in the middle of the night in the middle of the winter when it is absolutely the coldest. That, like, 2 o'clock to, like, 4 o'clock time frame where it is just, like, negative 400 right outside and you feel like you go outside, your eyes start to hurt. You know that? You know what I'm talking about? That cold? Okay, that's what it was in the, in the desert, right? You don't go to the well at, at noon. That's when your skin essentially just starts burning off, right? That's when you, you want to stay inside out of the sun and not do a lot of work around the noontime time. And so the fact that she's there at noontime means uh, something significant. Most people in that culture would have gotten their water in the morning. They get it at night. They try to go when it's cooler, there's also a social element to the well. It's where people gather. We talk, in, the, in the story we just did with Jacob, right? They, he says, go to the well, meet the people that are in the area, and look for yourself a wife, right? Like, that's where the social stuff is happening around that well. And so my guess is every morning the women would come, they would gather, they'd be around that well, they'd be chatting, talking. 
Every evening, there'd be people hanging around that well, chatting, talking. And if you wanted to avoid all the people in your town, you'd go at the worst time of day. You'd go in at the noontime hour. It'd be like us doing something in the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter. We'd want to be alone. There's no one out at that time. We're all nestled into our homes, all comfy and cozy. Right? That's essentially what's going on here. And so she basically says, sir, give me the water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here. In fact, I don't even want to come back to this place. I don't want to encounter any other people. I don't want anyone to have a conversation with. I don't want to deal with what's going on in town. I don't want to have any relationships with these people. I know what judgment looks like. I know what it looks like. And I don't want to have relationships with any of these people. I want to be left alone. So if you could give me water that keeps me from coming to this place and dealing with the possibility of coming into contact with somebody who's judgmental about who I am, then I would like to avoid that contact. She's still thinking physical. He told her, and this is where Jesus starts to get real serious, okay? So there's, there's a, a concept that I think is really important for us to, to think about. And in John chapter 1, it says, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, okay? And so when we're dealing with anybody who comes into our church, right, we want to meet every person who walks in off the street, no matter what baggage they're bringing in with them, no matter where they're coming from, with 100% grace. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. So there's something that happens in a relationship that when we start with grace, then we can work our way towards truth. I know that this is a youth ministry concept that I've taught youth leaders for 15 years, that you need to earn the right to be heard in people's lives, that if people don't know that you care about them, they're not going to hear anything that you have to say. Right? You have to earn it. You have to show them that you love them. You've got to put it out there. And so when we meet people, we meet them with 100% grace. And a lot of churches would end right there. And we'd say we're 100% grace. And that's it. You come, you be whoever you want. You're going to meet just only grace for where you're at. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, in any of these encounters that he had, he always led with grace, but he always finished with truth. Okay, so there is an element of telling the truth to somebody and making sure they understand who God is and how he feels about them and what he's called us to do uh, that is loving, right? So at any point when we get a chance to have a conversation with somebody, we're saying, hey, here's what scripture tells us how we should live. Here's what Jesus calls us to. We're going to meet people with 100% grace, but we're also going to finish with 100% truth. These two things can't be in conflict. They have to both be there. Sometimes you get a church, it's all grace. Sometimes you get a church, all truth. I think probably a lot of us have walked into a church where it was all truth. I like to call these people truthers, right? They would rather hit you in the face with the Bible than actually care about what's going on in your life, hear your story, engage with you, talk with you about what's happening. We've all been in that place where we felt uncomfortable, we felt judged, we felt like, you know, there are people that are just interested in only the truth. They want to use it as a weapon against people. And we, there's, on the other hand, we have people that are just only about grace, and they're not interested in actually helping anyone follow Jesus, right? They're just saying, be who you want, do what you want, it's okay, we're all good. We have to do both of those things. And by the way, we can't do a half measure of either, because people understand when you give them a half measure of grace, and people understand when you give them a half measure of truth. They feel that. They feel you hedging your bet. They feel you going most of the way, but then pulling back at the last second. And it's the last 10% of truth 
that is the hardest to, to communicate to somebody. Now, if anyone here is a Minnesotan, that's the part we don't want to talk about. That's the part we want to stay away from. It creates conflict. We don't want to, we don't want to go the full distance. We want to go 90% truth. You might even think about this in this way. How, are you, how do you operate with people? Are you like 70% grace and like 90% truth? We need to ratchet both of those up to 100. And what this is going to create is tension. It's going to create tension. Because if we're giving 100% grace to people, that means we're going to be in relationships with people where we feel uncomfortable. And I want you to know that tension is something we lean into. We want to have that. If we don't feel tension, we're not doing grace right. Okay? On the flip side of that, we're going to feel tension when we're not giving somebody the full gospel, when we're not telling them that Jesus is a better way for their life, we're not communicating to them that there's another step and a place that they can go and a relationship with Christ that's available to them. And we're going to feel tension if we don't quite do all that because you don't really love someone unless you're pushing them, pulling them, and pleading with them to follow Christ. Right? So we need both of these things. We need 100%. And Jesus starts to go 100% truth right here. Now, Jesus also, when he gives people truth, it's always contextual. He reads the person, he reads the situation, and he contextualizes the truth for that moment. Now, this conversation, I guarantee you, is not happening this way if the disciples are there. There's no way he says what he's about to say if other people are around. This is a conversation that happens between him and this one woman that they, because they are alone. This truth is able to be said because it is being said one-on-one. There's a lot of times where that truth that needs to be delivered needs to be delivered in a conversation face-to-face, one-on-one. Not from a stage as a blanket statement. Not from a group of people. But in a face-to-face, eye-to-eye, one-on-one conversation. So here's what he says. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She's like, oh man, even this stranger knows who I am. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is true. Now, he just called out her problem with being around other people. In this community, to have more than one husband would have basically put you on the outskirts of the community. You would have been living at the outskirts. Now, take into account that she's also a woman, which would have put you in a a tough spot in this culture. So now she is coming from a place where she has no power, right? She is an outcast in her community, and she's probably struggling. And it doesn't say why she has five. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with her, or that she's, it could have been that her husband died, and that to survive, she bounced from husband to husband. We don't know. We don't know what the situation was. I mean, it's possible that she's just had five husbands because they just all were terrible relationships that she used to try to survive in that culture. She's in a really awful, tough position in this culture. And Jesus doesn't let that be a problem for him. He meets her with 100% grace. Now, he's giving her 100% truth. I'm proving to you who I am and proving to you that I know what's going on and I'm proving to you that even though I know this, I still asked you for water. Even though I know this, this relationship was still worth me investing in and me going for. So she says, sir, the woman said. And I always wonder, by the way, you just don't have the context. Like, I always wonder how that comes out. Like, he goes, hey, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with is not the one. Is it like, sir? Or is it like, sir? Right? Like, sometimes there are times in the Bible where I need a little context. Like, I just want to... 
can we get some video? Like, I just wish, the, you know, does she want to slap him? Does she, is she annoyed at him? That she's like, she's like, I don't want to go there with you. Like, what is this response? Is it shame-filled? Is it aggressive? Like, ah, oh, man, that one word, I just wish I knew how it was delivered. And there really is no, nothing in the original language that tells us how she delivers it. The woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship. Now, she's going to do something that I think all of us do when we're uncomfortable with where the conversation is going. You've been in this spot. Someone sits down, they say, hey, I want to talk about this with you. Uh, we got to deal with something. And you just are able to create distance between you and that person by bringing up something that is going to create conflict. Essentially, you're about, she's about to create a Facebook argument, right? <laughs> so she says, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to have conversation around that. Let me get my water and go. I know how to end this conversation. She says, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She takes a political comment and tries to create space between her and Jesus. She's like, I know how to end this conversation right now. We're going to take it to politics, right? By the way, great way to end any conversation. Just go straight for politics. And I've said it many times, I'm a libertarian, so I'll just annoy everybody in the room, right, if I start talking politics. Uh, and so she creates this space for her to continue to hide, for her to continue to avoid the conversation, for her to get out of the situation. She's probably really good at deflecting the judgment that comes on her from other people and figuring a way out of that moment. Like this is a reflex of protecting yourself that you can see in this woman. And it's, it's a doozy, man. Like, this should take a Jew who believes that the place that you worship is in the temple and a Samaritan who they would look down on as in worshiping in an incorrect place. Essentially, all of the gods of the Old Testament that were uh, pagan gods, gods that were not the God of Israel, were worshiped in high places. And so when the Samaritans say, hey, we go up on the mountain to worship God, that is essentially saying, uh, you got it wrong and we've got it right. We're following the tradition from the Old Testament where gods were worshipped on mountains. You guys are following the tradition of the Jews where God is worshipped in a temple. And we're going to create some space in this relationship right here. I don't want to talk to you anymore about this. This should end the conversation. And Jesus won't let it. I want you to know anytime you're working with somebody or dealing with somebody who wants to avoid the conversation, they're going to pull this and they're going to try to create some distance between you and them. They're going to give you a yes or no question that you have to answer. They're going to try to get you into a corner. They're going to try to change the topic to a com controversial thing to avoid, uh, to avoid really dealing with the situation. So Jesus says, woman, and again, man, I would love to hear this. I don't think Jesus says this aggressively, like woman, get in your place. I think he says it tenderly, woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm not taking the bait, by the way. Some of us should not take the bait. Right? You want to be a Facebook warrior? You are hurting your ability to talk about Jesus with other people. Stop taking the bait. Don't enter into the conversation. Type it up. Send it to a person who believes the exact same thing about you. And talk between the two of you until you feel calm enough to leave it alone. 
Jesus says, you're not right, and the Jews aren't right. We're not going to worship neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come. The time is coming, and it's sitting right in front of you. When true worshipers will worship the Father in both spirit and in truth. They'll worship the Father in both spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And he, Jesus jukes his way out of the situation, and he turns it back, right, to the conversation with her. The woman said, I know that Messiah, here it is again, called Christ. So she's saying, I believe there's somebody coming who's going to save us, called Christ, is coming. When he comes... He'll explain everything to us. And I, I picture this, this is another moment where I was like, man, I wish I had the context, like as almost a question, as she's starting to wake up to the fact that there's something different about Jesus than anyone she's ever met. The woman said, I, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us? Like as in, I'm going to test the waters here. Are you who I think you are? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Are you telling me something that I haven't heard before? Is there something different about you. When we get someone who comes in, bringing their baggage, walking in off the street to a place where they start asking the question of who Jesus is, that's what we want. That's what we want. That's what the church is here to do, is to create that desire in somebody to enter into those questions with somebody, to fight with them about who Jesus is and what it's going to mean in their life if they decide to follow him all the way. Man, that is the moment where you know you're in the right place, when they start to ask you questions about Christ. And they're interested in what's going on with Jesus. And they want to know the answers to who Jesus is. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He basically goes, this guy. Yes. You just asked a question about who I am. Yes. I'm who you're looking for. I just told you about your life without knowing anything about it. I just read your mail. And I had a conversation with you about what's going to, coming down the lane for somebody who follows God. And I want you to know I'm the one. And by the way, I'll break through the fact that you're a woman. I'll break through the fact that you're a Samaritan. I'll break through all of these cultural faux pas to have this conversation to get you to a place where you're questioning who Jesus is. That is our goal. That is our desire, is to help people fight and pursue who Christ is in their life. That's what we want. We don't want to have political conversations. We don't want to have cultural conversations. We want to have Jesus-centered conversations about who Christ is in that person's life. Just then, oh, idiots. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Uh, I'm not even going to start with how ridiculous that statement is, okay? Find him talking to him. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? So essentially they had a little bit of Minnesota in them. (laughs) There was judgment in their eyes, but they weren't willing to say the things that they they wanted to say. And by the way, people can read you. You don't actually sometimes have to say the thing that they're hoping you don't say. They can see it. They can feel it in conversation with you. Whether you're giving them 100% grace and loving that person in the moment where they're at or not can be felt. We've all felt this. Either judgment from somebody or love and acceptance from somebody. Those are 
Those two things can be felt without you saying the word. I love how the message version says this. It says, this is what it says in the message version, which I think gives us a little bit more context, which makes it awesome. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe that he was talking to that kind of woman. No one said what they were thinking, but their faces showed it. Like She knows what this is like to be judged by people, and she picks it up immediately. There's something different about Jesus and his disciples. His disciples aren't in a place where they're willing to give 100% grace yet. And so they don't get a chance to speak 100% truth. If you can't figure out how to really give someone 100% grace, you'll never get a chance to speak the truth that God has for that person. You have to earn that right. And people feel it. Whether you use the right words or not, they feel if you're comfortable with them or not. They feel if you love them. They feel if you want the best for them. People can feel this. And so whether or not you're saying the right thing is not always the most important thing. It's whether or not you're actually really 100% giving that person the grace that they're looking for. It, says, it goes on. Then, leaving her water jar, and essentially what that means in original language is forgetting her water like Then, being flustered and leaving without her water jar is essentially what that means in original language. The woman went back to town and then said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out from the town and they made their way toward him. In other words, she got the message from the other disciples that I should leave now. I'm no longer welcome. The thing she came to do, she left there and she left on her way out of that moment and out of that judgment that she felt. This is, again, the message version. I love how it says, it says, the woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. Back in the village, she told people, come see a man who knew all about the things that I've done, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went to see for themselves. And I want you to know that's what happens, by the way, when someone is transformed in an encounter with Christ. Right? If you are transformed in an encounter with Christ, you have no... Uh, the thing that naturally happens in your, in your life is you start to tell people the story of what God is doing in you. And it starts to draw other people. They go, let's go see what's going on there or let's go see what's so different about Jesus or why is it something going on in your life that doesn't seem to be going on in other people's lives. There's something about that that, is, that draws people in. But there's not really a class that we need to do to explain how to share your faith. It's like if real transformation is happening, you'll just share your faith. It'll be something that flows out of you, that's just there all the time. I mean, I could do, I've been in sermons where it's like essentially I'm going to guilt everyone into saying, you need to go share your faith with somebody. We're coming into the fall season, we're going to be handing out invite cards. One of the things that most churches do is they hand you a bunch of invite cards and they say, you really should invite somebody, right? And you're not doing it right unless you, unless you do this, right? And a lot of us are like, okay, great, thanks for the invite cards, and we go put them Somewhere, and then what we, what do we do? We like leave them in bathrooms or gas stations. Like we don't actually want to have a conversation with other people. The people who know you best should know that your life has been transformed by Jesus without you having to to work for it. Right? That invite should be so easy. It should be so such part of. And we know that disciples aren't there yet, so it's okay that if you're not there. But this transformation, as it starts to happen in your life, just things take over, and you just start to live this thing out. That's what Jesus was doing. The disciples were definitely not there. So we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. And the reason we say it that way is because, look, we have, yes, we have a doctrinal statement. And we've got our values. And we know what the heart of this church is. 
And I'm willing to say that maybe we don't have every single thing right. I'm willing to say that as we lean into 100% grace and as we lean into 100% truth, that we're going to find things where we need to evolve and change the way that we think. And that might, in a five-year period, in a ten-year period, change some of the stuff that we believe about Scripture. But what I want to tell you is while we're imperfect and we're meeting imperfect people, we're asking for grace to flow in both directions. We're asking for people who come in who have different ideas about who we are, and as we start to share 100% grace and 100% truth with them, to give us grace as we give them grace. For us to grow and for them to grow. And I want you to know the thing that is the bedrock of where the truth comes from in this congregation is God's word. Okay, I am telling you that it's possible that I am potentially reading God's word inaccurate in some ways. And that as I seek his face, we'll continue to evolve in some of the things that we think and some of the ways that we interpret scripture. I don't have it 100% figured out. And I don't, I don't have that arrogance of saying we've got it all right. But what I'm telling you is that that underpinning, that structure of knowing that God's word is our authority is the thing that drives us. That as we pursue Christ and his word, we will continue to do it the way that God has called us to do. And as we learn and grow, that continues to get even stronger. I think a lot of times when we're talking about truth and we're talking about things, we're actually dealing with people, and this is, I think, very common in our, in our world, is that most people now don't have that bedrock of Scripture being your authority as a thing in their life. This is what happens. We go, I think something's true. And you know what? I think I should figure out how this fits into my theology of what the Bible is. And then we Google. Google's the greatest thing and the worst thing at the same time. It's awesome and terrible, okay? So you can get amazing stuff that you never knew, and you can learn all kinds of things. But you can also find some idiot out there that agrees with your terrible idea anytime you want. There's somebody out there who's found a way to pigeonhole Scripture into a thought that you have that you think is true. And most of the time, we start from the concept of, let me, this is what I think is true, now let me go find this in Scripture, and now I'm going to give you an argument that's really weak sauce by somebody who doesn't know the whole arc of Scripture, who hasn't really studied it, and they cherry-pick a verse out, and they go, now you should believe this thing because this is what I believe. And you could do that if you want. It's a terrible way to live. It's not going to serve you well. A lot of people right now, that's what they're doing. I want you to know what we do here is when we have a question about something, we're fighting through a situation. Man, we pursue God into his word. And we say, tell me everything scripture says about this. And we look at the whole arc of the Bible. And we study that original language. And we pour over what it means to find truth in God's word as the bedrock. And sometimes the truths that we find don't sit well with our culture and the way that we feel. And in moments like that, I want you to know we're going to go with Scripture. When it's uncomfortable or unpopular, we're going to go with Scripture. It doesn't mean that we're not going to meet people with grace. Like, that is an uncomfortable truth from Scripture, that we have to give people grace and love them no matter where they're at. But also, we're going to finish with 100% truth from God's Word, not from some expert on Google who wanted to try to move the church in a certain direction. We're going to be focused on the Word of God, okay? That's where that comes from. So I want to say, maybe we don't have it all right yet. Maybe we don't. We're still working through some stuff, man. There's still some things we're fighting through. That we're talking about on a leadership level, about where, where we're going to land on this, or how does this look in this church, or how are we going to fight through this situation. The one thing we know, 100% truth, 100% grace, 
And that bedrock of Scripture is going to be the thing that guides us. You know, in Jesus, as he dealt with people, he showed incredible grace for very specific groups of people, right? Now, there's more than just this, but we see these things over and over, right? So he showed incredible grace for women. Jesus didn't care what the culture said about where women were. He elevated them to a place where they were equal with men in many cases. Paul did the same thing, put women in charge of the church, had women doing all kinds of leadership positions. Women were hosting people that were coming from all over the place for the church. Like Women were incredibly involved in the church, and Jesus showed them great respect and did not allow the cultural differences to become a problem, as we see in this story, and also in many others where Jesus treated women in a way that would have been incredibly refreshing to them to know that he cared about them differently than the rest of the culture. He also showed incredible grace for the poor. Whenever he encountered somebody who was down and out, who was a beggar, who was uh, you know, not on the edges of society, he created space for that person and gave incredible amounts of grace for them. He also showed incredible grace for the unclean. There were people that society wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, stay away from, don't go near, and the, it had implications in how the Jews worshipped. If you had a relationship with someone who was unclean, you became unclean through that relationship. And so you'd want to cut them off and keep them at an arm's length and push them to the edges of society. And Jesus invited them in, and he brought them in, and he treated them with respect and dignity. Jesus showed incredible grace for enemies. Not only his, uh, his enemies, as in he showed grace for Rome, which was something Jews didn't want to do. He showed grace also for his cultural enemies, in this case, the Samaritans. Jesus was always, always showing grace to people. In fact, he called out the faith of people who were not in, um, not in the Jewish circles when they found faith. He was all about showing grace for his enemies. He also showed grace for the uneducated. All the people that were around him, they were too dumb to make it in some other rabbi's little group. And he called them in and called something out of them and saw something in them and called it out and gave them grace. And lastly, he showed incredible grace to people who were suffering injustice. And I think all of these things should be true about us. That we meet people where they're at, whatever baggage they're bringing in, whatever stuff that they're dealing with, they find a home here and that they feel that 100% grace when they walk into these doors, but we want to move people towards Christ. We don't want to leave them alone. We don't want to say, hey, come on in and just be who you want to be. Like, that's totally fine. Like, yes, come in and be who you want to be, but we want you to know our agenda, and we'll be straight with it. Here's my agenda, is to move you towards Jesus. I have an agenda. We have an agenda. Yes, we want to move you towards Jesus. We're not okay with anyone going backwards away from Jesus or staying where they're at. We want everyone to be pursuing God at all times. And you know what this creates? We talked about a little bit the tension that it creates between sort of churchy people and sort of rough around the edges people. Guess what? We're all rough around the edges, right? If you're a churchy person who thinks you're not rough around the edges, this is not the right place for you. You are imperfect. And so is anyone in who walks in off the street. And guess what? There are times in our lives where we feel like things are going great. There are times in our lives where we're really struggling. We want to meet all those people and have grace for them. But you know what it creates in us is this tension. And as a church, I want us to adopt this idea of the fact that we're going to lean as far as we can. 
I want us to go as far as we can, as far as we can comfortably and or uncomfortably do it. We gotta lean, we gotta basically lean 90% of the way and reach out our hands. That's what it looks like to deal with people who don't know Jesus. It's, it's us doing the work of saying, come on in, come be part of this. It's us going to them, not them coming to us. It's us reaching into the community. It's us reaching into people's lives. It's us leaning as far as we possibly can to meet people where they're at. And it's the heartbeat of why we started this church. And I want to tell you, Jesus had less grace for a couple different people. He had less grace for the arrogant. He had no grace for people who thought they had solved the entirety of Scripture or people who had you know, on both sides, by the way, you, people who are walking off the street and they're not going to deal with a certain thing because they don't want to talk about it. And then those of us who think that we've got it all figured out, he didn't have grace for arrogant people. He had grace for people who were broken. He had grace for people who were humble. The arrogant people usually got a little bit of his wrath. This is where he essentially is, you know, you think about a shepherd, right? When a shepherd carries a staff. Okay, a, a staff, and that staff is you know, kind of a long pole and it's got like a, like a hook on the end of it. And the shepherd can use that staff in many different ways to draw his sheep back to him. Right? He, can, he can kind of tug on them, he can kind of move them around with it, and there are times when he smacks them. Okay? And Jesus did that for the arrogant. He, they got the butt end of the staff and they got it hard. Right? Jesus had less grace for the abusively religious. The abusively, abusively religious. They got smacked. This is where Jesus calls out the Pharisees and says, you're just, you just missed it. You're dead on the inside. You look great on the outside, but you're completely dead and you're misleading people away from Jesus. You're actually getting in the way of their faith that they could have in Christ. And then lastly, he had less grace for agitators. And while we receive everyone in this church and we meet them with grace, we're going to protect unity. That's one of those things that's going to be an important value to make sure that we're protecting unity. People that come in to the church, they come in with an agenda and they want to move people in a certain direction. They're going to be met with truth and they're going to be pushed back to say, look, unity is really important to us. So Jesus had a lot of grace for a lot of people struggling, and he had less grace for people who thought they knew it all, for people who were abusively religious, for people who created chaos when they joined churches. And I want you to know, this was kind of the primary thing we were thinking when we started a church, a church that was a little more rough around the edges. There are churches out there that are going to be neat and tidy and black and white. I will help you find one of those if you can't handle the tension that gets created in a church like ours. It's not a problem. It's not for everyone, right? There's some times where we can't manage that tension and we feel that tension and maybe we're just not able to deal with it. That's okay. Maybe this church isn't for you. We, we know who we are. We're going to be a little rough around the edges. We're going to be more receiving people that create tension in our lives. We're going to lean as far as we possibly can, but we're going to have that bedrock of truth, and we're not going to back down from what God has told us, how he wants us to live. We're going to earn the right to be in those people's lives, and we're going to share the gospel with them in a refreshing way. That's the goal. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to, we're going to finish here.
God, we know what you have called us to is very difficult. It creates tension in our lives. That we need to fight through the tension. And we need to treat people the way that you treated them. God, I pray that this would be a safe place for people who are far from you. That when they walk into the doors of this church, that they would feel your grace. That they would understand that they can be part of something. But that, but that God, we would meet them in that love, in that grace, but also not back down from your truth, your gospel, the transforming work that needs to be done in every person's life. And God, as we come into conflict and as we feel tension, Jesus, help us to lean as far as we can to go for 100% grace, not a portion, not a part, but to really go for what you've called us to do. And I pray that your gospel would be refreshing that it would relate to people where they're at, that it would create a church that is in love with who you are and is being obedient to the truth that you've given us. In Jesus' name.